0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Nourish and Flourish is a proud supporter of Heritage Radio Network.
1: Nourish and Flourish. Handcrafted, ad-free. Print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Subscribe at nourishandflourish.site. <laughs>
2: Welcome back to Hardcore, a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. I'm Hannah Fordin. Last time, we got a taste of place. Visiting the Finger Lakes region of New York, and we gained a deeper understanding of the concept of terroir. Today, we're talking about the science behind cider making— and apple growing, also known as pomology.
1: Pomona was the Roman patron goddess of the fruit harvest. And they used to have a big festival in the fall in classical Rome. And most people don't know that. For years, people would ask me, what do you do? I'd say, I'm a pomologist. And they would say, oh, I didn't know there was a thing for palm reading and science. And, and most HOMOLOGY PROGRAMS AROUND THE COUNTRY NOW ARE are CALLED HORTICULTURE or, OR FRUIT SCIENCE. SO THE ORIGIN IS FROM POMONA.
2: WE'LL EXPLORE THE CHEMISTRY BEHIND FERMENTATION
3: AND THE CUTTING EDGE OF HORTICULTURE. SO THESE ARE THE KINDS OF QUESTIONS THAT GET ASKED FOR VITICULTURE RESEARCH FOR THE PURPOSE OF INCREASING THE QUALITY OF WINE, BUT HAS NOT REALLY BEEN LOOKED AT FOR APPLES FOR A VERY LONG TIME, PARTICULARLY NOT IN THE UNITED STATES. Because there wasn't really a cider industry in the United States before 10 years ago.
2: And we'll hear from researchers and farmers grappling with the threat posed by the climate crisis.
1: It's going to make something that's already a pretty high-risk way to make a living uh, even riskier.
2: So pop open a bottle or can of your favorite cider and join us as we delve into scientific techniques and research projects seeking to improve orchards and cider making. Here in the U.S. When it comes to the science involved in cider making, it's all about chemistry. And if you're already tensing up from the thought of your high school lab class, don't worry. We'll begin with the basics.
1: Fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. There are many different genera and species. Uh, The one that's the most common yeast that we use in alcoholic fermentations is Saccharomyces cerevisiae.
2: That's Ian Merwin, the cider maker and pomologist behind Black Diamond Farm.
1: So yeast are there. They're everywhere. They're all over the fruit. We're breathing them in and out. Uh, Any place where anybody's ever made wine or cider, there are going to be millions of them all over every surface. And you scrub and stuff, but they're there. And uh, yeast have evolved with the ability to take sugars. Mostly we're talking uh, sucrose, glucose, and fructose. And to use it as a carbon energy source, and the waste product of that is ethanol. So for every carbon that's in the sugar during fermentation, one of those carbons is going to end up in ethanol, and the other one's going to go out into the atmosphere is carbon dioxide.
2: To summarize, yeast transforms the natural sugars found in apple juice into alcohol.
1: They need to have a little bit of nitrogen and phosphorus and vitamin B and stuff to do that. And some cider makers and wineries feed their yeast a lot to get them to do that. We actually have the opposite philosophy. We, our process is we we press the juice, We put it in a tank, we don't put any sulfite, no SO2, uh, and we'll let it sit for usually 8-10 to days without any yeast addition.
2: And if Ian limited his process to the steps he's describing, he would be carrying out natural fermentation, which is when you ferment cider using only the yeasts naturally occurring on the apples and in the air. And many cideries do this. However, Ian likes to have more control over his fermentation process by adding in an additional element.
1: They'll start the fermentation. After eight or ten days, they're probably a third of the way into the fermentation, and you can measure the loss in sugar. And the the wild yeast are doing that, uh, and at that point, I usually add uh, some kind of a champagne yeast.
2: Champagne yeast is a type of domesticated yeast. It's used by wine and cider makers because they know exactly what sort of ferment they're going to get. With wild fermentation, there's a bit more left up to chance.
1: At that stage, inoculating it with a domesticated yeast strain, they will be able to finish that fermentation. Whereas a lot of times with the wild yeast, you get a, what we call a stuck fermentation. Some people want that. Uh, The traditional Kiev Normandy cider, they're actually aiming for that. I don't want it. I want the alcohol in our ciders to be uh, usually at least 7%. A lot of them are up in the eights. Sometimes they're in the nine alcohol by volume range.
2: This may all sound a little technical and have you wondering whether it impacts the product that ends up in your glass. Remember last time when we were talking about terroir? The yeasts that spur fermentation are one of the many elements that shape how your cider will taste. We called upon Greg Peck once again to apply his scientific expertise to tasting cider.
3: I'm Greg Peck. I'm an assistant professor of horticulture in Cornell's College of Agriculture and Life Science and the School of Integrated Plant Science. And if I am drinking cider with a group of students in my cider class, um, I'm often trying to get them to have a vocabulary that describes the chemicals in the cider or perhaps even things like, can you taste the tannins and what does that mean? so we're often having the students taste uh, apples or cider apples that have a lot of phenolics and high concentration of phenolics and then they get this dry or chalky sensation in their mouth. And so we teach them, okay, what's happening is the phenolics are binding with proteins in your saliva and they're precipitating out, these larger molecules precipitate out of solution and you can actually feel those molecules. That's that grit that you get when you have um, dark chocolate, like cooking chocolate, baking chocolate, or black tea or cider apples because it's similar compounds in all of these um, different kinds of foods.
2: Phenolics are also known as tannins. Tannins are responsible for a dry cider.
3: When I'm drinking cider for research, the differences are often very subtle. Sometimes we're looking for faults. Um, We're often, cider can be prone to a lot of faults. One of really common one is hydrogen sulfide, which is a rotten egg flavor or smell. Very um, unpleasant, but also very common in ciders because what's happening is that the yeast don't have enough nitrogen. And so they need nitrogen just like every other organism, right? And when they don't have enough of it, they start reducing sulfur. Instead of reducing nitrogen, they start reducing sulfur. Reduced sulfur is perceived as a rotten egg smell. So sometimes our research is, how do we minimize that? Like, how do we do things in the orchard to try to minimize that? But Greg's not all work and no play. And then thirdly, sometimes I drink cider because I really enjoy it. And then, you know, I try to to some extent, turn off the analytical part of my brain.
2: For one of Greg's students at Cornell, drinking cider for personal pleasure has actually enhanced his work. This is David Zakalik, a master student and a technician in Greg Peck's lab.
4: So it's given me a much greater appreciation for um, the importance of the juice chemistry, because usually what we're analyzing is, it's a little bit of like the fruit ripeness and size and um, blush, but like the color of the skin, but really, ultimately, you're trying to improve the flavor of the juice so that you have a a better flavored cider. And so once I started drinking cider and making my own cider and seeing, okay, you know, when I have something with really strong tannins, it'll apart this kind of mouthfeel, and it'll be more well-rounded, and it'll be more aromatic, I started to appreciate, one, the apple diversity of all these cider apples, and also... That, you know, not all cider is the same and that you can make a cider that's tastier and richer just by treating the trees, you know, better.
2: Not all apple trees are created equal. As we learned in the last episode about terroir, climate, region, fermentation, and farming practices all influence the taste of cider. And in Greg Peck's lab, we uncovered yet another layer in our search for answers about what makes cider great cider.
3: My research in cider really came out of a personal interest and also out of an interest that I was getting from the growers and saying, hey, Dr. Peck, should we, can we grow cider apples? Is it um, feasible? Is it economically profitable? Because they were getting asked by cider producers to produce these apples. And and they're different. They're different than the apples that they're used to growing for culinary production. They're different than Honeycrisp or Gala. Um, They have Um, some kind of funky growth habits. They have some disease issues. They are largely varieties that were selected hundreds of years ago in places like England and France, and not always the best genetics for our climate or region.
2: Before farmers and cider makers even lay a hand on a tree, scientists are influencing what varieties end up in their orchards.
3: So that really inform the basis of what I'm doing now for my cider research, which is, what do we grow, what variety should we grow, and how do we grow them? It's been fantastic that we're in a place like Cornell to do this kind of research, because Cornell is in New York State, second largest apple producer in the country.
2: We'll learn more about the science of cider apples after the break.
1: Nourish and Flourish is a handcrafted, ad-free integration of print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Explore emerging trends in nutrition, regenerative agriculture, and travel. Nourish and Flourish, thought-provoking content and innovative links to videos allow you to view the future of food and healthy living. Join us on a journey of discovery from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site.
2: Welcome back to Hardcore. We're putting on our lab coats this week to talk about fruit science. Before farmers started harvesting apples, how do they decide what trees to raise? Here's Ian Merwin again.
1: There's about 8,000 named apple varieties. Of those, about 800 or 1,000 are like used primarily for making fermented ciders. And they're, uh, most of them are in France and Spain, and the fewer in England, and then, you know, we, we don't grow a whole lot of them in North America, although that's changing.
2: Here's what Greg Peck has
3: to say on the subject of trees. For the cider community, they really want certain types of apples. They want apples that have high levels of tannins, which are a subset of phenolics, or acidity particularly for the premium end of the market, for the higher value end of the market.
2: Since many of these trees originated outside of the U.S., conditions in North America are not perfectly suited to their growing habits.
3: We're trying to figure out how to grow those here, but climatically, it's very difficult. In fact, we find that a lot of these apples um, are susceptible to things like winter injury, fire blight, which is a bacterial disease that they didn't have in Europe, when they selected some of these varieties, one, 200 years ago. Okay, to put it plainly, apple trees are tricky plants. And they are also very biennial, meaning that they'll have this on year with a lot of fruit and then the next year, very little fruit on the trees and kind of these swings between high productivity and low productivity. And that makes it very difficult if you're in the business of trying to sell apples or cider and you only have a product every other year, that's very different from a business perspective. So we're working on, on a lot of these questions in my lab to try to figure that out. Um, are there varieties that have less susceptibility, are more annual in their production, but yet still have the juice quality that the cider producers are asking for?
2: Graduate student David Sakalik did one experiment to try and resolve these swings between high and low productivity that can really hurt farms who need consistency in their
4: product and also hurt
2: cider makers who need to source quality fruit.
4: If you manage the number of fruit on the tree relative to the tree's size, um, can you improve the quality of the juice and can you get the trees to bear more evenly? And so a big challenge um, with any crop, but especially with these cider apples, which are in high demand, is that if you have an uneven supply, you could actually depress demand for it because people get tired of chasing around different suppliers each year we started measuring the tree trunk and counting the number of fruit on the tree and thinning them to a different crop load. And so there's a medium, a low, a high, and then some we left completely uncontrolled. And, you know, what, how do they behave if you don't do anything to them?
2: Studies like this don't yield quick results. And it can take many seasons, many years of making incremental changes to a tree before scientists are able to draw any conclusions. David and his teammates reshape the tree gradually to see how its height, its width, its branch density, all impact how the fruit grows. And slowly, they start to get
4: some answers. We looked one year after, after we had stopped thinning, applying treatments, and we found that if you've only thinned for one year, the next year they're already reverting back to their sort of biennial pattern. Um, But it seems like um, if you've done it for a few years, the trees really start to even out, and they start to bear evenly every year.
2: Reshaping the trees mean more
4: fruit are produced. And that's good, right? So the next question is, is it economically viable? Is the labor and the chemical input and the time, is it worth the return in yield and the improved juice quality and all that?
2: Reworking a tree's genetics and reshaping their growth patterns can help make apple growing more successful. But there's a bigger issue farmers are facing that could have a huge impact on what we're eating and drinking in the future. Climate change.
3: Even if we were to stop burning fossil fuels now, the effects of climate change are still going to impact us. And if we continue burning fossil fuels at the rate that we're doing it, the effects are going to become more profound.
2: Farmers are already seeing the effects. Here's Ian Merwin again.
1: In general, it's going to be a disaster for agriculture, every kind of agriculture. So you have a general lengthening of the growing season. Nighttime temperatures are higher. Daytime temperatures are getting a little higher. And that's the, quote, global warming, unquote, part of it. And growing fruit crops especially it's a very high risk i mean one night of cold in may and you lose your crop one you know like last november it was in the 50s we had a long warm wet fall and then on thanksgiving uh, it was a record-breaking minus five degrees and we we've got probably 100 trees that are dying in our front orchard from that one day
2: Farmers are on the front lines of climate change. Their day-to-day is affected by subtle shifts that can make or break a harvest. That means that the industry will have to move fast to be able to adapt to the growing
3: crisis. It is not going to be easy. It is not like, oh, it's just going to be that we're going to grow different apple varieties and everything's going to be fine. That's not true. Um, Sometimes you see that kind of response, like, oh, we can just grow varieties that they grow in Virginia, for example, because now our climate in 10 to 20 years might be more like Virginia than it is now. And the fact of the matter is that with climate change, not only do we have the change in climate, but we also have the unpredictability that it brings with it, which are the weather extremes. So things like one year might be a drought year, one year might be a flood year because of excessive rainfall.
2: And changing weather also means a changing ecosystem.
3: What about insects? You know, well, for something like cobbling moth, which is that proverbial worm in an apple, currently that insect goes through two life cycles in one summer. Right? So it'll go from a larvae, and then it will you know, go into a cocoon, and then it'll emerge as a moth, and it'll reproduce, and then it'll lay eggs, and then it'll have another larvae that can then enter into an apple the second time. And then as an adult then it'll come out and then usually overwinter as a larvae in the end of the second generation. But if our seasons get longer, it's possible it goes into a third generation. So that's like another impact, right? So that means more sprays, more insecticide sprays, more damage on the fruit. Um, There's all these kind of downstream things. Another example, weeds, right? As our climate gets warmer, weeds are gonna become more of an issue, which means right now, In our research orchards, we typically only need to apply herbicides twice a year. Maybe that means a third or fourth application of herbicides.
2: Are you overwhelmed yet? Because I am. Rather than trying to solve every single problem posed by a changing climate, Greg is zooming back to look at the big picture.
3: I very strongly feel that the future of the U.S. cider industry going forward is going to have to be based on new genetics. Meaning um, we're going to need to come up with new apple varieties, um, hopefully bred in our land-grant universities, or maybe even by um, people doing it in their own cideries and their backyard breeding programs, but new genetics, because a lot of these varieties, as, as we've mentioned already, are not climatically adapted for New York or California or Washington State they're meant for England or France and so yeah they can work here we can grow them to some extent but we could have new genetics with disease resistance with precocity easy to harvest and we can do that with using modern approaches to breeding um, so that we can say okay it has that trait for disease resistance it has that treat for you know small phenolic compounds so that those would potentially be apples that we want for the cider industry. So I would love new varieties.
2: What are apples and cider going to look like in this carefully engineered future?
3: Yeah, the apple of the future, right? I mean, I think, I think we need it. I think the U.S. cider industry needs it, and I'd love to see the future of the U.S. cider industry based on on an apple bred in the U.S. that's climatically adapted, or maybe several. Maybe there's one for New York. There's one for Washington. There's one for California.
2: While the fate of our planet might be uncertain, scientists like Greg Peck and his students at Cornell are working hard to make sure that we'll still have cider to sip on for the foreseeable future. And most importantly, crucial changes in technology and agriculture will preserve local farms and treasured foodways. Next time, we're going to look at how policy impacts what we drink and the many different philosophies of farming.
0: And so one of these preparations is, is actually taking oak bark, stuffing it into a cow skull, and burying that cow skull in a creek for a year. And then, and then when we remove that that oak bark, which is then composted within that cow skull, it is this essence of, of, of water, you know transportation within a plant.
2: And foraging.
0: Every seed of every apple would produce a unique tree fruit. pretty crazy. Most of them are not good for anything. They're usually too acidic. Or uh, none of sugar, whatever the case may be. Too soft texture. Maybe only one out of every thousand might be an apple that's worth something.
2: That's next time on Hardcore. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying Hardcore, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on your favorite podcast app. This helps new listeners find the show, and we really love to hear what you think. Hardcore is produced by Dylan Hoyer and me, Hannah Forden, with lots of help from Kat Johnson. This episode was engineered by Matt Patterson. Special thanks to Jordan Werner Berry, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and Liza Hamm. Hardcore is powered by Simplecast. Hardcore is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.